Good morning, IBC. Good morning. Um, I could stand here and say a whole bunch of stuff about how sweet you've all been. Nicole and I have had a, a sweet time this week, and uh, fighting off head colds and all that stuff hasn't deterred from a lovely time of relationship and getting to know um, better some old faces that I've known for a long time, but also getting to know a lot of new faces and enjoying seeing where God has brought this congregation. Um, we are in 1 Kings chapter 8 today. 1 Kings eight twenty two through 30. I really appreciate what Rob just did. Um, I've been praying that for myself, that I wouldn't be all caught up in the, the, the candidating of this, but that I'd be able to just enjoy this passage with you, um, be nourished by it, and I hope you do the same. Uh, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Kings 8, starting in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that you have bu- I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our world is filled with instability. I trust I have no need to belabor that point to you. The last few years have proved it to us abundantly, have they not? We live in a world where if we look towards the future, we don't know what's coming. We can conjecture, we can think we have plots and plans and we get our fingers on these, these ideas, but really we have no clue. The world is an unstable place and we are unable to know what's coming. Where do we find our hope? Where do we as God's people find our hope? You know, there are lots of sources of hope offered to us every day. We get smart and powerful people put in front of us saying they know how to lead and move forward into this uncertain future. 
We get social programs put in front of us saying they know how to organize things in order to get things good going on. We get political agendas put in front of us that claim to know the conservative good or the liberal good or however we need to move forward. And I want to come to you today on the authority of this text and say that we, as God's people, have only one hope. We have only one hope. I don't want to belittle the work of people who are trying to create peace and prosperity in this world. Christ blesses the peacemakers, does he not? Christ honors those who seek to love their neighbor. But we only have one true hope. We only have one vital center to our hope. Only one thing that gives us identity and security moving forward. And that one hope is God. Now that may sound cliche, right? Of course I'm going to say God. Let's expand that. Let's expand that idea even further. What do I mean when I say God? I mean God. In the presence of his people, fulfilling his promises. We need God with us, fulfilling what he has promised to do for us. We need God in the midst of his people, dwelling in intimate fellowship, fulfilling his unmatched and awesome promises. And that's why we're going to 1 Kings 8, 22 through 30 today. It may seem like a strange text to go to, right? Uh, for a one-off sermon, for a candidating sermon. But this text is awesome because it comes at a pivotal moment in the life of God's people. This, this moment that we're going to look at in a moment is, is one of the high points, if not the high point in the entire narrative of the Old Testament. The pinnacle of God's fulfillment of his promises up to that point. And so we see in this moment a, a beautiful demonstration of a king of Israel getting his mind straight, seeing things clearly. This is a high point we're going to look at, and yet Solomon's noticing rightly where his hope lies. So even as we have varying opinions of what point we're at, are we at a high point, a low point, middle point, where are we at on the spectrum of God's blessing right now, we come with Solomon today to get our focus restored on our only hope, God. The vital center of our identity and hope as God's people is God in the midst of us fulfilling his great promises. And so in our text this morning, we have two hopes, really two hopes presented to us by Solomon. He guides us in his prayer to hope in two things, two aspects of our God, two characteristics of our God. Hope number one, in verses 23 through 26, we'll see that we need to hope in a God of unmatched faithfulness. We need a hope in our God who is unmatched in his faithfulness. And then we'll move in the second half here in 27 through 30 to see that we need a hope in a God of intimate fellowship. A God who longs and is moving towards us in fellowship. All right. So that's our aim today, those two hopes. We're trying to nourish ourselves with those two hopes. We're trying to focus ourselves on our God who is unmatched in faithfulness and longing for intimate fellowship. So let's set this scene up. Let's understand why this moment is so pivotal. Let's look at verse 22, uh, where the scene is set for us a bit here. Then Solomon 
stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So as you can see here, this is a big moment. Solomon, the king, is standing before the entire assembly of Israel and he is leading them in prayer. And specifically, he's leading them in a prayer of dedication for the temple that was just made. So we need to understand how this moment, in order to see why that's so amazing, we need to understand how this moment fits into 1 Kings, okay? So let's do a little work there. And then later on in our study this morning, we'll see how that fits a little bit better in the big, big picture. But for now, 1 Kings. Where are we at in the story of 1 Kings? 1 Kings uh, is a, it starts off in a wonderful way. There's a challenge. David needs to hand over the throne to Solomon, He's promised it to Solomon. A brother gets in the way. Solomon ends up with the throne. David dies. Solomon has the throne. It's established. It's repeated over and over as you read these first few chapters of 1 Kings that Solomon gets the throne and he, his throne is established. His rule is great and it starts to prosper by God's blessing. It's a wonderful reign. He is wise. Wiser than all people in all the earth because God has blessed him with wisdom. And in that wisdom, he rules in a way that brings prosperity and peace. Israel has been brought to a place where they are free from oppression from their enemies. They are at peace, which I don't have time to go into right now, but that is an amazing fact when you think about the Old Testament storyline. We have been longing for centuries for Israel to be at peace in their land. And here we are. Solomon is reigning in peace on his father's throne. But that's not all that's going on here. Solomon has just finished building a temple to his Lord. A temple, a place where God's glory would dwell, where sin would be dealt with, and God could be in the midst of his people. They could be his people and he could be their God. They could dwell in fellowship. This is a huge moment. Solomon has finished the construction of this temple and really one of the most glorious statements in all of the Old Testament comes in verse 10 of chapter 8. It said, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house. This is the most epic moment in the Old Testament narrative. God's people are in their land, they have peace, the temple is constructed, and God is there, dwelling with his people. And in the midst of this great moment, in the midst of this high moment, Solomon looks to the past, and he looks to the future, and he focuses his his heart and the heart of his people where it needs to be focused, on his great God on what he's going to do to fulfill his promises. And so with that in mind, we move with Solomon to look at these two great hopes, these two great characteristics of God, his unmatched faithfulness and his intimate fellowship. And we're supposed to follow Solomon and long for these things with him. So let's move into our first hope. Hope in a God of unmatched faithfulness. Look at verses 23 through 26. Solomon says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, 
keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Okay. A God of unmatched faithfulness. Solomon offers a request that has a logic here. He begins by stating facts, truths about what God has done. And based on those truths about what God has done, he then offers his request. He looks to God's past faithfulness, and then he calls on God to continue to be faithful. Look at that 23, the beginning of verse 23 there. He, he starts by looking at God's great character, his greatness. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. You're unique. You're superior. You're different than all the other gods of the nations around me. Why? Or I I should say, how is he different? He's different to the greatest extent you could possibly be different. In heaven and on earth. He's using that as an, an image to say, to the greatest extent, no matter where you go, you are unique. You are unique everywhere. You are absolutely unique. And why is he absolutely unique? He goes on to give his reason. Because of his unmatched faithfulness. Look at that. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Why is God unique? What sets him apart from the hopes and the idols that other people put their trust in? He's unique because he actually keeps his promises. He actually keeps them. When he makes a covenant, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, it's going to happen. If God puts his steadfast love on somebody, it will never depart. He keeps his promises, he fulfills his covenant, and that's what sets him apart. Now, think about what that means for a second. What does it take for God to keep his covenant? When he says that you, when Solomon says you are unique because you keep your promises, think about what that means about this God. When you make a grand promise to somebody and it doesn't come, pa- come to pass, why doesn't it come to pass? Well, because you don't know the future. Your heart is fickle. Things come up. Stuff happens, right? We don't keep our promises because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't have the power to make anything really happen. God, when he keeps his promises, is demonstrating not just that he's superior in his faithfulness, but his faithfulness demonstrates the fact that he's superior in his power. He's superior in his knowledge. He's superior in his presence. He's everywhere, enacting his will wherever he wants. God is unique, and that uniqueness funnels through these covenants he's made. He proves himself to be different by being faithful to his promise. And not just faithful to generic promises, Solomon hones in on a very important promise, especially for Solomon, but even important for us today. God kept his word to his servant David, Solomon's father. 
Look at the end of verse 24. God said to David, you spoke with your mouth. Or, or sorry, Solomon is saying, you spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. It's not, it's not a generic belief in a God who is good or a generic belief in a God who fulfills his generic promises. Solomon is honing us in to think about some concrete promises that God has made. We are dealing with a God who can make his unique promises happen. And these promises that he made to David are not just dealing with wishy-washy things. They're talking about international politics, wars with enemies, the hearts of foreign kings, keeping his kings faithful to his word. These are massive realities that God is proving faithful in. And in order to really understand what we're dealing with here, these promises, we have to go back, right? We have to go back to this moment when God made these promises. So I'm not going to have you turn there because the text is too long, but we need to summarize shortly. What are these promises that Solomon's saying God is so faithful to fulfill? What has he said to his father, David? Back in 2 Samuel 7, we have a really interesting narrative, uh, a pivotal narrative, a foundational narrative in the history of God's people. David, out of, out of a desire to worship and honor God, asked, can I make you a temple, God? Can I make for you a structure that you would dwell in? And God says, you're not going to make me a temple. Your son will. But what I'm going to do for you, David, is I'm going to make you a house. Not a physical house like we live in. He's going to make him a house. He's going to make his children prosper. God promises to David that from David would come sons. And those sons would rule over his throne forever. God promises that David's throne, his rule, would never come to an end. That's a, that's a lofty promise. David's rule will never cease. David will have a son, and that son will be brought to peace there will, be no, there will be no war in that son's reign, at least while he's faithful to him. God will establish his reign, and, and if that son fails, he will, he will continue his promise, even if that son doesn't get to enjoy the, faith, the, the faithfulness of God in it. But the faithfulness will continue. David's reign will be an eternal reign. And so Solomon looks to these promises and says, wait a second, a temple has been made. God's been faithful. My reign has been established. God's been faithful. And up to this point, I have been faithful to him by his grace. God has been faithful. So Solomon looks to these great promises and their great fulfillment up to this point, and he praises God for his uniqueness. He says, you are utterly unique in the whole world. You are a God of unmatched faithfulness. And so what does he then pray? He moves on to his request in verses 25 and 26 based on these great truths. He says, Now therefore, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. He has two really parallel requests here, two parallel statements. He's asking God to continue in his faithfulness. God has been faithful. 
continue to be faithful, God. Continue to keep me and my sons faithful to you so that we can enjoy this promise that you've given to David. But continue to be faithful to David. Continue to be faithful to make his reign an eternal reign. Now, we don't have time to walk through the whole history that follows. This is, this is a sad moment when you actually know the story. That, that caveat he gives, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you've walked before me, proves a sad reality. Solomon falls to idolatry, to, to foolishness. And his children move down the path of destruction. Until at the end of the king's narrative, we've got Israel in exile, away from their home, away from their land, subject to other powers, away from their temple. God no longer dwelling in the midst of his people in peace and harmony. But the promise continues. And it's beautiful that this, this promise to David actually starts to encroach into our life as that promise continues because a son does come who proves faithful. A king comes who proves himself obedient. And to him is given an eternal dominion. His name is Jesus. He is our king, right? So this promise given to Solomon, though it has a conditional aspect for the immediate sons who fail, continues. And Solomon, though he only sees this continuation by faith in God's promise, gives us where we need to put our hope. We place our hope in this God of unmatched faithfulness as he fulfills his promise to bring about his eternal kingdom. As he sends his son to defeat evil, to bring peace, to unite his people back to their God so that they can dwell with him and be his people. We can set our hope in the kingdom to come because we have a God of unmatched faithfulness who has made concrete promises to a king thousands of years ago. It's a beautiful reality we live in. Solomon serves us not just as an, as an example to pray like he prays, which we should, pray God's promises. Pray God's promises. But he sure serves as a guide as to where we need to anchor our hope in this promise to David that we have a king who will win. Right? So as you look to your uncertain future, thousands of years ago we have this text written that says we have a certain future. We have a king who will sit on his throne, who is even now sitting at the right hand of his father. His promise, his kingship will come to completion. So that's our first hope. We hope in a God of unmatched faithfulness. We hope in a God of unmatched faithfulness. Let's move into our second hope. In our uncertainty about the future, as politics and wars and pestilence and plagues and all these things face us, we hope in a God of intimate fellowship. We don't just hope in a God who's moving on the cosmic grand scale of time and place, moving kings, setting up kings, removing kings, doing what he wants. We have a God who in all of that 
is setting up relationship, who's longing for us, his people, to dwell with him in love and harmony. We have a God of intimate fellowship. And just as, just as Solomon's first request had that logic to it, right, where you start with the truth and then you move into a prayer request, his second request here does the same thing. Only in his second request here, he starts with a problem, really. He realizes in this moment that he's in that his people are facing a giant problem, a seemingly insurmountable problem. What is this problem that they face? He says in verse 7, or verse 27, sorry. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So what's this problem Solomon is facing? Solomon has his theological brain on straight in this moment. He realizes that while the building he just built for the Lord is a glorious building in human standards, beautiful, beautiful building, it is nothing in comparison with who God is. Nothing. Nothing can contain our God. He is infinite. The heavens and the highest heavens. I mean, that's just an extreme way of saying nothing contains him. Nothing can limit him and box him in and say, this is where that God is. You know, the idols of the nations around them had their homes and they never left their homes. They just sat there on a pedestal and they went nowhere. This God is uncontainable. He doesn't have a home. He is infinite. And yet, his glory just dwelt in the midst of his people. So there's this tension at play in Solomon's mind. Like, how can this great God dwell here in a house that I have built? A house that these sinful, feeble hands have built. How could this be possible? And he's struck with a grim reality. If God is choosing to dwell in the midst of his people in this temple, as he's already proven he is with the the cloud of glory coming in, then God's people have a massive problem. They have been confronted by the holiness of their God. What are sinful people doing in the midst of a holy, perfect God? How could this relationship work? How could this intimate fellowship in the temple be possible? It, it can't be possible unless sinfulness is dealt with. Forgiveness is granted. And so Solomon prays, and he prays exuberantly. He, he repeats himself over and over and over. You can see the repetition in his request. Hear, listen, listen, listening, Listen to our prayers, and when you hear, forgive. You see, the beauty of the temple is that it wasn't just the place where God would dwell with his people. It was the place where God would make it possible for him to dwell with his people. He provided a means in the temple for forgiveness to be granted. Through the sacrificial system in that temple, through the blood of animals, the sins of the people could be dealt with. And they could be counted 
holy in the midst of their holy God. God wanted to dwell with them to such an extent that he orchestrated the entire life of the nation of Israel around really the forgiveness of sins. That in every piece of their life, they would be remaining holy in his presence so that they could dwell with him through this sacrificial system and have their sins forgiven. But it's not just, it's not, we have to understand, it's not just that we get our sins forgiven. You know, this is something that we struggle with uh, as we present the gospel, right? The gospel is your sins get forgiven and people scratch their head like, okay, like what, what's the big deal there, you know? The big deal is, is that we have a God who longs for intimate fellowship with his people. We have a God who wants to be with his people in relationship. And so as we present the gospel and as we understand the gospel, we need to move beyond the fact that mere forgiveness is given and recognize that forgiveness is a, is a means to a greater end. It's a means to the end of having relationship with our God. Having him in our presence, fellowshipping with us. And that's, that's the case here in the temple. The sins are being dealt with through this forgiveness so that... God, the infinite God, could dwell in this house and be in the midst of his people. Solomon has his head on straight. He knows that if God's going to be here and our sins aren't forgiven, we're toast, we're squashed, we're dead. Holiness doesn't mix with sin. And so he prays, hear us and forgive. Hear us and forgive. Solomon understands God's desire. He understands God's heart in this moment. God longs for intimate relationship. But as before, what Solomon only really knew in part, he only knew what God had told him up to that point, we see a bigger story unfolding. We see a bigger story unfolding. This story from Genesis, God dwelling in the midst of Adam and Eve, walking with them in the garden, and the entrance of sin and God providing a a sacrifice that foreshadows and offering a promise that redemption would come through the son of Eve, right? We have this beginning and we have this, this middle where the tabernacle is established and God now can dwell with his people, though on the road. And then we have this temple established, this physical, beautiful structure that God can dwell in the midst of his people in their land now in peace and prosperity. But that's not where the story ends. The story continues to the point where Jesus can say, neither on that hill nor on this hill is worship, but we worship in spirit and truth through Christ, the spotless lamb, the one who deals with sin permanently through his death and resurrection. We, we become the temple. As Christ dwells in us, through the gospel, through his spirit, we become the place where a relationship with God and man happens. It's astounding. And so we, we need to understand this theological tension Solomon's dealing with. Like, we have sin. And we are dealing with a God that is infinite and holy and beyond anything we can comprehend. How can this be possible that he would dwell in us. We need to understand the gospel. We need to anchor ourselves in the gospel. And not just generic gospel, right? 
We need to get ourselves like Solomon into concrete truth. That in Christ, we have all sins dealt with permanently. In Christ, the wrath of God has been placed on someone else. The wrath that we deserve has been given to somebody else and he died a perfect spotless sacrifice. And in Christ, we have a righteousness, a performance, an obedience that we could never have earned given to us so that we can stand with our God, holy, blameless, justified, righteous. We see this this temple moment here as Solomon's grappling with these truths and we see Christ, the God-man, come to dwell among us through his spirit. It's a, a beautiful truth we get to rest in. Again, Solomon doesn't just guide us by saying, giving us an example of praying truths, right? Praying promises. He, he gives us the things to wrestle with, the things to anchor ourselves in. Do you know this forgiveness? I don't know you guys as well as I would hope. I don't, even those of you who have been here for decades, do you, do you know this forgiveness through Jesus? And, and most of you, I trust, are saying, yeah, yeah, I, I understand forgiveness through Christ and the gospel. Let me ask you, do you know how intimate God wants to be with you? Do you experience intimate fellowship with him? I mean, I'm preaching that to myself. Do, do we experience the intimate fellowship that all of this was designed to create? Do we, do we know our God like he has moved throughout history to be known? Because if we don't understand this intimate fellowship, we're going to turn elsewhere, aren't we? We're going to turn elsewhere for our satisfaction, for our confidence in life, for a sense of love. And everywhere else we turn will prove unable <laughs> To satisfy what God created us to live in. We'll fall into sin. We'll fall into idolatry, making created things in place of the creator. We need this intimate fellowship that's given to us through the forgiveness of our sins with this great, amazing creator God if we're going to have hope going forward. As as things potentially are taken from us, right? You see that down the pipeline. As the church becomes more hated in America, I don't know how else to put that, you're going to have freedoms and possessions and things in places that you, or you're going to have those taken away in ways that make you feel really uncomfortable. And what's going to happen to us is we're going to want to reach out to those things and try to hold on to them with a death grip. What's going to keep us stable and secure as that stuff happens. We have a God who is infinite, who is the creator, who is everything our hearts could ever long for. As Gary prayed from Augustine, like we are designed to be satisfied in this God and he has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. Intimate fellowship knowing him on a daily basis, finding our meaning from him on a daily basis, finding our purpose, finding the love we need. We need to understand 
how God is longing for intimate fellowship with us. That's our hope. Do you have it? I pray that you would have it more today. We have a great God. And not just in generic categories, but Solomon leads us to hope in a great God who is unmatched in his faithfulness. Do you know his promises in Christ? Do they give you stability? They should and they can. We have a God of intimate fellowship. Do you, do you know relationship with him through Christ? You can. And in those two great realities, we can have hope moving into an uncertain future. Uh, Stuart Townen, you guys are familiar, I think he wrote one of the songs we sang this morning, has a lovely little hymn he wrote. It's called, There Is a Hope. Have you guys sung it before in this church? I don't know if you have. It goes like this. There is a hope that burns within my heart. What's this hope? It gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. What is this hope? I stand in Christ with sins forgiven. And what does that do? Christ in me, the hope of heaven. My highest calling and my deepest joy to make his will my home. God is our hope. Not just in generic categories, but in who he is, who he has promised to be. Let's anchor ourselves in that vital center. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Solomon's example. Even as he's a fickle and sinful person like we are and fails ultimately, we see here your grace in his life to pray these great prayers. I pray that we would move through these prayers to see Christ, our great king, the son of David. And that we'd move through these great prayers to see Christ in whom you dwell with us by your spirit. I pray that these truths would anchor us no matter what we face. I pray this in your name. Amen.